Welcome to the Mental Disorder Podcast. My guest today is John Hirschauer. John was previously an assistant editor at the American Conservative and has recently joined City Journal as an associate editor. He's also a Robert Novak Journalism Fellow at the Fund for American Studies. He writes and reports on mental health care, religion and public life, and American politics. John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Your writing and reporting is is very interesting and it's different because, you know, there's very few people who are sort of right of center by any means who are interested in mental health, mental health care. What got you interested in those topics? Because, yeah, it's just there's so few people who are actually interested uh, on the right. The uh, most direct explanation for it, I guess, is I grew up right down the road from a large state-operated institution for people with uh, what's now called developmental disabilities, used to be called mental retardation. Um, And it, from the outside, is a very stereotypical-looking asylum, basically. You have 1,400 acres, these huge brick buildings that were built in the 1930s as a work progress administration project. So, I mean, it's very, very much from the outside a a foreboding place. But um, I got involved about six years ago. Uh, as a volunteer with some of the residents and um, eventually got involved um, in a nonprofit group there that meets with the director of the facility and um, kind of advocates for the residents and talks about, you know, ways to make their lives better. And just kind of learning a lot about what these institutions are, why they were built, what they're like on the inside, those that are still open, why those that have closed have closed, um, and sort of tracing the history of the facility within my hometown, which was for a long time, and I think still is, though it's it's not it's closer now than it used to be. It was the biggest employer in my hometown, and so it was a really big kind of driving feature of of life growing up. Um, and so, yeah, just kind of learning the history of my town and of that place opened my eyes, I suppose, to to this this chapter of American history where we built all of these huge institutions across the United States in rural towns, kind of set away. Um, and you know, a lot of people lived their entire lives there and it was tragedy. Yes. There was a lot of warmth and empathy that I think went undercovered at these places. A lot of people did their best to give people real decent lives. Um, and of course there, there are the abuses that everybody's familiar with. So I guess it was just getting to know the, the patients at this facility in my hometown and advocating for it in some capacity that, um, got me interested in not only the developmental disability side, but kind of by extension, the mental health uh, side of things where the story is a little bit different, but but similar and more familiar to people than the, than the developmental uh, issues side. Wow. Let's take a, a step back a bit. So we almost talk about deinstitutionalization more than institutionalization, which is kind of funny. But, um, you know, just to, just to start off, what kinds of institutions are we talking about broadly when we're talking about basically institutions for people who can't take care of themselves? I mean, what are the different types? Yeah, I guess there are a few different ways to break down the conversation. I think the best way to do it would be from a historical perspective. So in the middle of the 19th century, you had this reformer, this Protestant reformer named Dorothea Dix, who went around the country state by state and visited the almshouses, which were kind of before the asylum system was built in the United States. If you had somebody who was mentally ill, particularly with a psychotic illness, you would place them um, at these almshouses, which were basically catch-all facilities for, uh, you hate to use this term, but it was the term in vogue at the time, undesirable. So you had uh, people with mental illness, people with developmental disorders, alcoholics, 
criminals of various kinds. You had uh, the elderly, people who were demented. So it was a real ragtag group of people who were, for one reason or another, uh, ill-equipped to either care for themselves or their loved ones just couldn't put up with them anymore. Um, and these facilities were, and, and again, I, I always hesitate because there's a sort of like Whiggish view to these things where we look back and think, oh, they were so awful. But there were real people who dedicated their lives to making these facilities, whatever they as good as they could be. Um, and I don't want to undermine their work by, by you know, uh, caricaturing what these places were. But when when Dix went around the country and and saw what the almshouses looked like, I mean, they were clearly inadequate. They weren't serving. Um, they weren't improving people's lives. They were at, at best providing custodial uh, care, kind of maintaining people's basic functions, and that and that was at their best. At their worst, they were they were all of the the all of the sort of uh, terrible adjectives you could attribute to the later mental institutions you could uh, attribute to the almshouses. So she went around the country, saw these almshouses, and and also saw jails and prisons and houses of correction where. Uh, people with these types of illnesses often were kept in what she describes as dank dungeon-like conditions. Um, and so she, you know, being a very devout Christian was moved by what she saw. And so, and this is to me, one of the, one of the great undercovered stories of reform in American history. She went from state legislature to state legislature demanding that these states, which at the time, I mean, were, were variously explicitly Christian, or at least the legislators made a big show of being very Christian people. And she appealed to their religious consciences and said, look, like you have an entire underclass of people who are being treated terribly by people who are variously deputized by the state and local governments to care for uh, these unfortunates as the, as the phrase had it. Um, And, and, and you're treating them terribly in these facilities. And so she went state by state legislature by legislature and demanded the creation of what would later be called state hospitals for the mentally ill, which at their inception were called asylums. Uh, you know, uh, there are all sorts of, of names for them, uh, but but asylum was the most common in the initial in the initial era. Um, psychopathic hospital, those types of things. Um, uh, retreat even was a was a, a word that was used for some of the early facilities, and uh, kind of one of the interesting developments, and I think a real testament to to the long lasting mark that Dix made on the landscape of mental health care, the original set of asylums, quote unquote, that were built at the inspiration of Dorothea Dix, in in almost every state in which they were built, either still house a mental facility today or are on the grounds of a smaller inpatient unit that remains on the initial grounds where Dix clamored for these places to be built, which is kind of an interesting testament to her work. For example, she uh, in Trenton, New Jersey, there was a place called, or there is a place called Trenton State Hospital that used to be called uh, like the Trenton Home for the Insane. They built a mansion for Dorothea Dix on the grounds of the institution, and she ended up living out her final days there and dying there. And that is still open in Trenton, New Jersey, as the Trenton uh, Psychiatric Hospital. So it was a real, it was a real testament to to what she did for people with mental illness and the conception that she and the other what were called moral reformers or, or moral treatment was the initial model uh, under which these these facilities, these state hospitals were conceived. There, there was a thought going around at the time, and we can talk about to what extent this was actually accurate or, or whether today there are any lessons to be learned from this theory, even if the mechanism they proposed isn't exactly right, that urban life was bound up in some, in some way with... Um, chaos and disorder, both uh, at the level of criminal behavior, but also at the level of psychology and uh, a mental disorder that 
that somehow urbanization was bound up in um, all of these pathologies, among which were uh, mental illness. So the, the thought was, we're going to purchase hundreds of acres, in some cases, thousands of acres in the rural part of the state. And we're going to build these retreats. And this is why retreat and asylum were part of the original monikers of these places, is they were thought to be retreats away from urban life, retreats away, asylums from the chaos of urban life that were set in bucolic rural parts of the state, the respective state in which she clamored for these places to be built. Um, and one of the key reformers she brought along with her, um, or who was sort of incidentally involved, was Thomas Story Kirkbride, who was a... At the time, they were called alienists because they, they dealt with the the aliens over at the it, the psychiatric facilities. I mean, there's just an unfortunate history with some of this terminology. But uh, he was an alienist and an asylum doctor who came up with this idea called the Kirkbride Plan, where they would build these majestic uh, castle-looking buildings, um, and w- you know, therapeutic architecture was the idea. That in addition to having these serene, bucolic rural campuses, you'd have these very majestic, forward-facing uh, buildings that would not only testify to the public, and this was this was bound up in Dixon's idea, testify to the public that this population was of chief concern to the legislature, that we're not just going to put the insane, so to speak, in these dingy buildings, these dingy shacks, but instead we're going to build these almost mansions um, in these beautiful places to testify to our care for uh, the, the people with these types of disabilities or mental illnesses. And of course, uh, that vision was betrayed later and we can get into that, but at at their founding, that was the vision was we're, we're going, and you can read some of the speeches from them laying the cornerstones of these buildings and speaking in very idealistic terms about what these majestic, almost Gothic looking buildings represented about the state's care for people who couldn't care for themselves. Um, and so, yeah, Kirkbride was, part of this movement that said, get people out of the urban areas into the, yeah, into, into rural areas, have them do farm work, have them do, you know, various on campus occupations and create a world apart, a community apart, uh, a place of asylum and refuge uh, for people with these types of disabilities. And so those, those were called the state hospitals. They are called the state hospitals. Um, And today to, to flash forward, and I'm sure we'll, we'll in time get into the kind of the intervening years between the founding of these places, the abuses that arise later as they become overcrowded, um, and some of the initial treatment methods were found uh, to be bunk, basically, um, that the, the purpose of these places changed. Um, but yeah, today they're, they're called state hospitals. Every state still operates at least one. Oftentimes it's on the grounds of the original uh, institution. So, so I like to say when we talk about deinstitutionalization, on the mental illness side, so talking about schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, that kind of stuff, we're really talking about a downsizing more than an actual out-and-out closure um, for the most part. I mean, now, I think Trenton State Hospital in New Jersey is a good example. That place I mentioned earlier might have 200 to 300 patients, where in 1955, you might have had 2,000 or more people living there. So that, that's kind of the decline we're talking about. And, and the types of people you have served there today... Um, you're looking at people who are admitted, so they, they go to an emergency room, they've had a psychotic break or, or something like that, and or they've gone off their medication and they need to be stabilized. So they go to the emergency room after a sort of crisis episode and they wait for a bed to open up. And if they can't afford a private pay, uh, private hospital, they'll be sent to 
um, one of the state psychiatric hospitals. Um, you also have people who are adjudicated not guilty by reason of insanity. So this is where those people go. Uh, when that when that verdict comes down in the courtroom, that is where people are sent. They're sent to the state hospitals. Uh, or so, some states have forensic hospitals that, that kind of serve the same purpose, but it's it's the same idea. And the third population, and this, this population grows smaller with each passing year, and they're sort of an artifact of time in a way, are the long-stay patients. So patients who have been institutionalized for 30, 40, sometimes 50 years, who were maybe patients in these places when they were at their height in the 60s and 70s, and just uh, in the sort of, uh, uh, what's the, the movie, Shawshank Redemption sense, became institutionalized and never wanted to leave. Uh, and so that, that population grows smaller with each passing year, but it is still there, and it is a non-negligible portion of the still extant uh, institutional population. Uh, and so that's on the mental health side, and we can kind of stop there if you if you want to. Um, there's a kind of equivalent story, if you like, with with the developmental disorders side of things, but uh, I'll stop there. So there were th- there were three different uh, types in there, right? What, what were they again? You could even expand it out to four. So let let me do that. You could do um, people who have a psychotic break, okay, um, and have uh, aren't responding properly to their medication, and these are people with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, so psychotic illnesses, if you like, to use that old Freudian distinction. Then you have people who are um, acutely, so they've been admitted to an emergency room after a suicide attempt, and the doctors at the ER have determined that they're not safe to be released immediately, and so they're transferred, usually for a 72-hour hold. We're not talking about a a seven-year hold like you used to get at the state hospitals, a 72-hour hold. Uh, for somebody who's been admitted after a suicide attempt, just to stabilize them. Um, then you have people adjudicated not guilty by reason of insanity. Um, and even actually, interestingly, in some states, and these are this is usually a, a, a separate facility, and not every state does this, but they do have civil commitment facilities for sex offenders, actually, uh, for people who have committed sex crimes, have served their sentence, but for one reason or another, the, the mental health personnel determine that they're still dangerous. They'll be, I, I think Minnesota has it on like an island somewhere. I mean, it's very kind of esoteric. It's out there, but some, some states do have that as an option. And then the fourth, the fourth would be um, uh, long-stay patients. So people who have stayed at these facilities for, I think the, the definition, the working definition uh, of long-stay patient at these places is usually more than a year. But when, when I use the, the term, I'm talking about people who have been there for 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years or more. Okay, so these this this is state hospital. This is separate from uh, people who might be intellectually disabled and that kind of thing, right? So where would they go? That history is one that just kind of by the introduction I gave you, I'm a little bit more familiar with on a, on a granular level. Um, the these so just like there were state hospitals for the mentally ill there was a similar reform movement that began about the same time it wasn't prompted by dorothea dix but it was about 1866 or so is when things came stateside it started in france but it came stateside in the middle of the 19th century um there was this movement to create instead of state hospitals state schools they were called for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities because again at the time people with those types of disabilities were if not out and out shunned from their families, they were sent to to almshouses or even prisons, depending on the types of behaviors they were they were want to engage in. Um, so the idea was, and this this all kind of stems back interestingly to um, there was a hospital or asylum for the deaf they called it in France, 
where there was this doctor, uh, Dr. Jean Itard, who started training some of the individuals uh, with intellectual disabilities, because that's one thing that would happen. These facilities, whether they were almshouses, schools for the deaf, insane asylums, they became sort of catch-all facilities for these populations that didn't have dedicated uh, facilities. So like elderly people with dementia would go to the state hospital or uh, people with intellectual disabilities would go to the school for the deaf. I mean, these were just sort of, it was a square peg round hole type of thing for a long time. Um, So at this asylum for the deaf in France, uh, Americans started to notice, and there's an old New York Times article about this that you can dig up, noticing that, wow, they're actually teaching people with these types of disabilities, uh, intellectual disabilities, cognitive limitations, uh, teaching them the same way you would teach uh, a regular, quote-unquote, normal, quote-unquote, kid. Uh, and that, you know, just as the sort of burgeoning progressive era is, is being ushered in and, and people um, want to move beyond these sort of uh, hidebound views of, of people's limitations and so forth with, with disabilities, there was a real sense that, okay, just like we created these special facilities for the mentally ill let's do something similar and create special facilities for what was called then people with feeble-mindedness was the old term uh idiots so to speak again uh, these are these are the old terms that were used and so they created a network of what were called state schools and just like you would send uh your child or quote-unquote regular child to the public school you would send your disabled child to the quote-unquote state school um and in their early years and this is a, maybe a theme that we'll see across both of the facilities, it, they really did succeed in their stated function of taking a child with an intellectual disability at a certain age. So you take them at five, six, seven, eight, nine years old, um, and you give them, and this is what the schools were predicated on, giving them uh, vocational skills, because at the time the idea was, you know, uh, we're going to teach you and give you as much as your, your intellectual gifts or, or limitations will allow. Um, and if the best chance for you to quote unquote, live a normal life is to be a farmhand, well then by golly, we're going to make you a farmhand or if your best chance is to be a mechanic, then we're going to make you a mechanic. And, and so just as the state hospitals were built on these huge physical plants, the state schools, uh, took on a, a similar model because in large part, agriculture was the best chance for a person with these types of disabilities, particularly males, uh, to have permanent employment upon leaving the institution. And so they placed these facilities in rural areas and they gave in the early years, so we're talking 1880, 90, into the early 1900s, they really did succeed. And if you read the early boards of trustees reports in terms of the numbers of people coming in and being put back out into the community, quote unquote, it really was an impressive clip for the time, you know, with shoestring budgets in many cases, these were never well-funded institutions, okay? Um, but over time, just like on the state hospital side, though I would say I would say actually it was worse, um, if it's possible for it to be worse, because the people in the state schools were, were helpless in a way that the people in the state hospitals were not. Um, these facilities, as more and more parents of people with these types of disabilities heard about the successes at the early state schools, they said, okay, I need to get my kid there. I need to get my disabled child or son or daughter into this facility as early as possible. Um, and what started as schools with maybe a hundred people started turning into schools with 300 people into schools with 500 people into schools with a thousand people and staff, maybe a hundred staff. So you're, you're talking about a 10 to one at best 
staff to patient ratio or vice versa, patient to staff ratio. And they law, I mean, the, the school moniker continued as sort of a euphemism, but they really were not schools by this point. In 1940s, 1950s, you started to see photos emerging and, and later video emerging from some of these facilities where children were kept in cribs just because, you know, there was a sort of industrial management style of these places where it's like, make sure everybody is clean, that they've had a bowel movement, that they are fed, spoon fed one by one by one by one. I mean, this is, again, trying to be as sympathetic as possible <laughs> as you can to staff who really presided over inhumane conditions. I mean, there's no two ways about it. There is a certain logic to it in a terrible way. Um, if you are that outmanned, so to speak, that you kind of have to view people in terms of when was the last time he or she had a bowel movement? When is the last time he or she ate? Uh, does she have he or she have clean clothes on? You can't you can't provide the sort of individualized uh, care that's necessary, especially for people with severe and profound intellectual and developmental disabilities, which are often bound up with medical problems or sometimes they have co-occurring mental illnesses. So it's just uh, it was nothing approaching dignified care or, or anything that a that a that a country as wealthy as the United States should be. Should, should be proud of. So it, um, it precipitated eventually as, as things sort of reached a crisis point where there was a Geraldo Rivera expose at the Willowbrook Institution in 1972, I want to say, where he went in unannounced into the, to the walls of the Staten Island facility uh, and just saw, I mean, kids in cribs whose legs were totally whittled down almost to the bone, um, who may have otherwise been able to walk, but because they had been kept in cribs, more or less continuously for 10 years, they'd lost permanently the ability to walk. Just, I mean, human tragedy of, of a scale that the United States, frankly, I don't know that they've ever fully, fully, quote unquote, reckoned with, to be honest with you. Um, and I, I think it engenders a lot of righteous indignation and probably rightly so uh, for many people who had to live in these types of facilities. Um, but those types of exposés that happen in the middle to later part of the 20th century precipitated a lot of reforms. And I think this leg of the story is often under, under covered. Um, there was the creation under Richard Nixon in 1972 of what was called the Intermediate Care uh, Facility Program, ICF-IID, later called ICF-IID for Intellectuals with in Intellectual Disabilities, at the time ICF-MR, Intermediate Care Facility for People with Mental Retardation. And basically, it told the states, look, if you're going to continue to operate these, these state schools, okay, what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to basically invert these staff ratios. So instead of uh, three patients for every one staff, it's going to have to be three staff for every one patient. Okay, And I'm, I'm using a little bit back, back of the envelope math here. This is not ex exactly what Appendix J says, but this is close enough for government work, right? Um, you know, you have to, instead of having cribs stacked on top of one another, we're going to mandate at a bare minimum a certain amount of square footage that each patient is entitled to if they're going to be living at this facility. We also are going to mandate that people, and this is something that uh, unfolds over time as uh, litigation about the, the rights of individuals to live in the community if they wish, um, it kind of unfolds. Later, we're going to see if you're going to keep somebody in a facility like this, they've got to be aware of the alternatives. They have to have the right to, to choose that alternative, especially if they're on the intellectual disability side. It's not like they committed a crime and are being held for that. Uh, they're, they're innocents. Okay. Um, and so giving people a full array of choices, among which is the institution, but it's not the only choice. Um, and so, and I can, I can attest to this firsthand. I, I do think I can speak with some 
with some firsthand experience on this because now I, I, you know, the facility where I volunteer now was one of these state schools. It was a house of horror in 1950 in some ways, you know, I, again, with, I, I do not want to paint with too broad a brush about what these facilities were like in the fifties and sixties, because there were redeeming qualities at every one of these places. And every one of these places was not the same. I mean, Willowbrook state school was not Southbury training school was not uh, Mansfield training school was not they're, they're not all the same thing. It's it's, there's a different experience at every facility and it's a mistake, and it 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 casts too broad a brush on on a lot of human effort that went into making these facilities everything they could be. Uh, but I mean, the place in my hometown was a state school, and there were all sorts of exposés. And I can say today, I walk I walk the the halls of these buildings, and I I see. I mean, again, I'm not a patient. I can't give you a day to day experience, but I'm. This is a, a huge part of my life. I I go in unannounced, and I. I see the staff caring for the residents and it's just not, it's, it's not what it was in 1955. It's not what it was in 1985. It's not what it was in 2005, you know? Uh, so these regulations are a testament on the one hand to the possibility that, um, uh, to the potential, I suppose, of, of federal regulations to make a meaningful on the ground difference in the lives of people who are in these types of facilities, number one. Um, but number two, and this is kind of a difference between the mental health and, and developmental disability side, there is a call for total abolition of these facilities that does not exist in, a, in as meaningful a degree on the mental health side, because I think people realize just the impracticality of it, that you're always going to have um, patients who, you know, somebody gets adjudicated not guilty by reason of insanity, and what's the alternative? If you're not going to do that, then what are you going to do, right? Um, so I think people, legislatures have kind of arrived at the the fact that there's just an inevitable need for that level of care. Um, but on the developmental disability side, 17 states no longer operate a quote-unquote state school or developmental center or habilitation center, whatever euphemism these places have taken on now. Um, and there is, I mean, the largest disability rights now, uh, organization in the country, the ARC, officially opposes the continued operation of the, these facilities, even if the individuals and their guardians want to remain there. So they, they, they advocate for, and this has been one of the things that's been most chilling for me to cover, um, has been what it actually looks like on the ground. If you say, you know, in the name of disability rights, these places are hidebound, terrible places. We're going to close this place. We're going to shut it down because that's the right thing to do. It's one thing to say that it's one thing to sign a bill that says that it's one thing for the governor to sign it saying, we're going to do it. It's another thing to move 150 people who are more or less satisfied with the place they're living and can hardly express themselves and have oftentimes lived at these facilities for 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years, uh, tell them, hey, you know, in your limited understanding of the world, maybe this is all you know, but we're going to take you out and we're going to move you because the governor says so, because disability rights people say it's it's what is in your best interest. And yeah, you just see, I mean, I, that has been the, the most gobsmacking part of all my reporting across the mental health and de- developmental disability side has been what happens to these people with these really severe developmental disabilities who are told, uh, you know, and they can hardly comprehend it, that, yeah, you're going to have to leave the place that you've lived for 30 years. And what that actually looks like in practice can be chilling. But, you know, there is another side to it. There's a, and I, I apologize, Jonah, for rambling here, but there is, there is another, there's another view on this, and it's not mine, but there is a view that um, these types of facilities per se, I mean, Willowbrook State School is just as bad as Southbury, is just as bad as Mansfield, is just as bad as uh, Topeka, is just as bad as any facility across the country. They're all the same and they all should be shut down. You should put a plaque on it and uh, we, should, we should salt the earth on the places where, the, uh, places where these, these facilities used to be housed. So 
it's it's a very intense conversation and the intensity of the conversation frankly is born of how bad the places were in 1970 so i can't almost i almost can't blame the, the people who are as incensed as they are because i don't know either they don't appreciate how much things have changed or and and this is more common i think because a lot of the, the advocates who oppose these places have seen the inside they they know that it's not willowbrook but they still think this is a simulacrum of real life and it's not real life. You know, it's, it's a, it's, it's fake. And I would never want to live there. Therefore, therefore nobody should live there sort of thing. Right. Well, it's interesting because yes, it is true. Right. In the seventies and and a bit before that, if you were to look at these places, they would be horrific. You know, one, when you were describing uh, the Staten Island one, I immediately thought of like Romanian orphan uh, orphanages, right. That sort of situation where, Children are just not cared for to the point where they cannot develop, right? Like they're in, in Romania, some of the orphanages, the children's like eyes were not well developed because they were just not looking at enough different stimuli to like develop the muscles. Like there's horrible things like that. You have to balance that with two things. First of all, is that uh, before that, uh, before you had the overcrowding, essentially, you had a situation where people uh, wanted to get their kids into those places so bad that many, many uh, kids were being ushered in each year, which at least suggests, okay, initially, many parents uh, thought it was a good idea. And it, you know, to your point about high turnover ra- rates, it, it clearly had a, a good effect uh, in the beginning. Then, it, uh, you know, I guess because it's a government-run institution and it's harder for them to, right, they're not making money off of this, right? And so it's harder for them to add more staff and uh, expand at basically the rate they would have needed to compared to a private institution, then you just have these horrible overcrowding problems. You can't deal with it. Um, But the institutions today, right, are thanks to regulation, uh, also thanks to the work of activists and reformers and and people like that. And also, you know, to your continued point, to the people who work there, who really are trying to make a difference, they're just not the same. Uh, They're much better. But for these, I guess you could almost call them philosophical reasons, political to some degree, but in some sense, it's deeper than that, right? Uh, you have uh, disability activists uh, or disability groups. I think the National Council on Disability um, right, opposes these, who are saying that they want to not have any new institutions and they want to bring people from those places into community-based care. And well, you know, before we t- before we talk about the the fil- sort of philosophy behind that, which I think is very interesting, let's talk a little bit about community based care. So I- I'm very familiar with community based care on the mental health side uh, from reading a bit of the history, and essentially the idea being that there were uh, people with all kinds of mental illnesses, uh, and they basically said they'll be okay on medication and getting therapy in the community and that kind of thing, and so it's fine for them to live normal lives. Maybe they have um, somebody who checks in on them or something, but really it's just about them taking their medication. Now that was, I think it is now widely considered to have been like a total disaster on many fronts, especially for people with the worst mental illnesses. Uh, many of the homeless people, right. We, we still see in the streets who are older are often, you know, basically products of that process. Um, now what does community-based care, at, at least in theory, look like for people who have, say, an intellectual disability? Is this, I'm going back to live with mom and dad, and there's going to be a social worker who I talk to? I mean, so like, what, what is the promise here uh, that uh, is being made? So I would take a step back and say a few things. First, 
Um, and, and we should also get into what community-based care on the mental illness side looked like or what it was, what it was conceived as when John, John F. Kennedy signed the Community Mental Health Act. But, but on the developmental disability side, I, I would say, and I would even concede the argument that deinstitutionalization and community-based care has been much more successful. I mean, it's almost impossible to compare the, the difference in success rate, if you like, between the downsizing and closure of institutions on the developmental disability side, intellectual disability side, compared to the mental health side, where I think it's been an abject disaster and everyone left and, you know, sort of left and right broadly construed agrees. Now, the, the left say, says, and again, I'm, I'm using the left very broadly here, and I'm, I'm kind of applying that frame to, I guess, mental health politics more than I am traditional left-right politics. The, the left wing will say basically that, well, the problem was we didn't fund the community-based alternatives well enough um, that we, you know, we just need like 50 more Stalins. It wasn't, you know, one Stalin wasn't enough. We need 50 more sort of thing, um, to use the slate star codex, uh, analogy there. But, um, you actually have an article where you, you talk about how people writing at the time, psychiatrists writing at the time, they did not think the problem was not enough funding. They, they thought the problem was that these treatments didn't work. And I mean, some of the treatment ideas were like insane. Like they thought that if you gave young people therapy, they wouldn't get schizophrenia. I mean, it's, it's like, it's, it's, it's also pie in the sky, but, but anyway, I mean, so continue with the uh, disability side. No, 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 it's a great, it's a great point. And, and the, uh, you could write books on, on what went wrong with, with the community mental health movement in the United States. But this idea that you bring up the idea of prevention, which was so in vogue in the 1960s, where, you know, in fact, what, what the real problem is, is, is with society and um, if we can break down these social barriers that cause people to get mental illnesses, then we won't have mental illnesses and we won't have the need for these big state hospitals and we won't have the need for institutional care. And we can have this paradisiacal world where everyone lives in the community and no one ever for any reason needs, needs involuntary, involuntary treatment. And, um, you know, and how do we do that? We do that by improving social conditions. And how do we improve social conditions? We mobilize. And so a lot of the community mental health centers that were funded as a result of the 1962 Community Mental Health Act explicitly dedicated themselves to social activism. Like said, this is part of our mission. We're going to go to the picket line with the labor unions, or we are going to, you know, support this or that uh, ballot referenda referendum on, on the local level to improve the lives of people in cities. And maybe those things were good. I don't know. I mean, on the, on the particular level, it doesn't much matter to me whether this or that strike was worth supporting, but these organizations so internalized this idea that you could prevent mental illness, that they let people with like schizophrenia who are discharged from the state hospital languish on the street as they were down the road. And this is only a very slight exaggeration as they were down the road with the uh, auto workers uh, picketing for higher wages. So, I mean, it's, it was, there was such a mismatch between the actual needs of people and the sort of abstract theory of like, well, how are we going to mechanically shut down the state hospitals? Well, we're going to prevent mental illness so that there are no more mental patients. You know, it's still the same today. And I think it's always been the same. I mean, people, there's a whole discussion about the politicization of science. And I think it's a very important discussion um, but I don't like when people say like, oh, well, up until, you know, 2015, uh, all the psychiatrists and psychologists were all totally apolitical. And, and but suddenly now it's they're being woke. I'm like, no, they've all pretty much always, you know, been really involved in politics, activism. They, they've always basically played this role. No, it, you're right. And 
the, the biggest problem with psychiatry, psychiatrists, I think, and it's, I mean, it's also bound to, and this is a longer conversation. I don't want to derail from, from the point you asked, because I do want to get to the developmental disabilities and what community-based care looks like, but I just built to put a bow on this. It's just the nature of psychiatry. I think that, um, we've been, we've been shooting darts at a dartboard for now 150 years, trying to figure out what even causes some of these conditions. And we still don't know. We have a better idea now, but we still don't know. I mean, you, you can look at a, at a, at an MRI or at a, a PET scan or whatever, and you can, there are things you can pick out and say, okay, maybe this person has schizophrenia, maybe, or maybe they don't, maybe they have dementia, maybe they have nothing at all. Um, there are certain symptoms that when they appear in constellation, you can think, okay, I've got maybe a 70% chance uh, if I'm just guessing blind that this person has a psychotic illness, but we don't know for sure. It's not one or zero. It's not, it's not a binary test. And so, yeah, we're dealing with at best in inexact science at, at, at best. Um, and so that that is sort of that has to be in the background of this conversation. I would say it's like when we're talking about involuntary treatment. I mean, it, it's very hard to argue. I don't think it's an insurmountable burden, but I, I think the activists have a point that we've got to be very precise about what we're talking about when we're basically detaining people for an, to treat an illness that we can't precisely diagnose, like with a total one hundred percent certainty. Um, so that yeah, I mean, I think that kind of colors colors the background of of the deinstitutionalization conversation, but to just to just to answer your question directly about what community-based care looks like for people with uh, developmental disabilities, and I, I want to make every concession here that it has broadly been very successful. And if I had a disabled child, I would I would ninety-five uh, percent, you know, de- unless there were some really severe condition that would warrant me considering otherwise, I would I would probably consider community-based placement. Um, and I never want to speak for a parent or what I would do, but that's just me kind of being extemporaneous here just to kind of comment on how good the services are in, in many places. You have a continuum of services that isn't perfect, and I, I wouldn't advocate the positions I do if I believed it was perfect. But broadly speaking, you have um, everything from supported living in an apartment. So for somebody who's really high functioning, sometimes people even have college degrees or whatever. Um, but they have, you know, maybe autism or some sort of like basic, uh, neurological issues that, that require help with day-to-day functioning. They might have a stat, a social worker, like you're saying, who will pop in uh, every once in a while. That's at the very high functioning end of the spectrum. And then kind of the most common mode of service provision now for people with developmental disabilities who would be in state, who would have been in state schools 50 years ago is the group home. I mean, that's sort of now the model across the United States is anywhere between a, two and five person group home is kind of the standard. Now you get some bigger group homes at the six to 10 to even 16 uh, person size, but those are rarer now than they used to be kind of in the initial phase of deinstitutionalization when they were getting people out of the state schools, just in a desire to get them out as quickly as possible. They said, let's build a 16 person group home, but that didn't last very long. Um, and, and they kind of gradually downsized to the point where now there are two to five usually is, is, is the range, even two to six, but depends on the state. And then there are, interestingly, this is a, this is a product of the 1972 reform. You have private equivalents to the state schools that arose. So basically private ICF IIDs. Um, and these can, these some are as small sometimes as six bed units that are basically intensive care units in the community for people with really severe disabilities who would need basically either to live in a nursing home or a state school or whatever. But they, they try to recreate the services at the state school in a smaller, quote-unquote, community-based environment, and that's a loaded term, but I'll, I'll allow it for the purpose of this conversation. Um, 
a little six person unit, or sometimes you can get a 32 person ICF in a quote unquote community setting or a private 150 bed facility that from the outside looks just like a state school, but it's run by a private agency. So those exist. They're rarer. The same forces that are trying to shut down the public ICFs are trying to shut down the private ICFs, even the six person private ICFs um, for, for the ideological reasons you mentioned. Um, they think even though they're in the community, they're still based on the medical model, so to speak, which is out right now. And you can't, you can't support that. Um, and so, and yeah, there, there are still the state schools, which, um, there, there, some states like Texas has 13 of them, uh, 17 states have none of them. And, uh, you know, there's sort of everything in between. So, uh, it's the advantage of that form of care. If I can lay out the maximalist case for it or the, or the best case, I think, and this this goes across the mental health and developmental disabilities thing sides. I, I think that this is the best argument, as far as I can tell, for for institutionalization for these types of populations. You cannot, in a group home, in a small independent apartment, recreate the wraparound services that you get in an institution. If you imagine the average client at a state school developmental center, public ICF, who has survived all these rounds of deinstitutionalization and is still there. You're talking about people with uh, co-occurring intellectual disabilities, which, I mean, you know, they have the mental functioning of a toddler or less, and also schizophrenia or, or it's like a psychotic illness on the side. You have people with behavioral issues. You have people who bang their heads against the wall. You have people who eat inanimate objects, and they need the entire house proof to make sure that they don't pick up a piece of plastic and choke on it. Um, I mean, some of the, the biggest horror stories we have of people being discharged from these types of facilities is... They have what PICA is the condition, and they go from a uh, an intermediate care facility where all of this stuff is, you know, they make sure that there's nothing loose in the house that you can swallow. They get placed in a less intensive community-based setting, and they choke to death. I mean, that there, I could pull up a million articles where that happens, and it's terrifying. But that that is the reality of of the types of patients that are left in the state schools, so to speak, the developmental centers. And so, um, the best argument I think for that level of care is that. For those types of clients, if if you think about all the services they need, all right, they need um, they need occupational therapy. They need sometimes uh, diet like dietary services to make sure that the food they're eating is pureed properly because some of them have aphasia and they can't swallow properly. So they they need to have the food ground to a specific consistency. If it's at the wrong consistency, they'll choke. That's it, game over. So it's got to be right, no mistakes. You you know you have people who have like. Some bringing a person with severe intellectual and developmental disabilities to the dentist, you wouldn't, you couldn't imagine how hard that is. Like you can't just bring them to the dentist where you or I go. I mean, there are all sorts of specific. A lot of them need sedation because they won't voluntarily comply with somebody poking and prodding around their mouth. Um, so it's it's almost impossible for some people in the community with IDD to get dental services because they can't find somebody who's a specialized provider. So having dental services on grounds. Um, having a psychiatrist and a behaviorist on ground. So if they're if their behaviors are ramping up and they don't know why, having a having a behaviorist on the grounds of the campus, not 30 minutes away, not somebody we can call for an appointment, maybe they'll see us in two months or whatever if we're lucky, but somebody who can literally is in a building right down the, the road who can walk down the street, take a car down the street to the building, walk in, see what's going on and, and address the, the issue, whatever it is. E even if... In the ideal world, in the ideal world of activists who say, well, you can just take all of these services that are available at the institution where you have people literally on the campus 24 hours a day providing these various wraparound full spectrum services. 
to the idealists who say, okay, well, we can just do that in a six-person group home. If you think about the expense involved in recreating that for, so let's say you have a state school or a developmental center or ICF or whatever with 200 people. You say, we want to do this exact same thing, but we want to do it in five-person units. If you think about the cost involved of reproducing that single locus of care, and it's not just about cost. I mean, you can, I can make an argument for these places that has nothing to do with cost, but just at the pure practical level of how are you going to reproduce these services to this degree for a population that like kind of by natural selection, if you like, is like the highest level of need in the state, because otherwise they wouldn't be there. I mean, just sort of the way it works. It's a, it's a no brainer. I mean, to have a single purchaser of medications, think about the economy of scale effect. If you have to have, um, you know, somebody, if you have one person buying, uh, you know, medical supplies for the entire facility versus, uh, I don't know, whatever 200 divided by five is purchasing individual medical supplies for the different units. I mean, it, it's, it, it's just an obvious choice to have the economy of scale at the institution. So I don't know that, that even answered the question that you asked, but... Um, <laughs> no, it did, because I, I asked yeah. way back when I asked about what the community-based care was like for people with intellectual uh, disabilities and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, I mean, and I think, you know, it's also one aspect of that wraparound service, in a sense, is just having a lot of people around, right? There's There's... People may have a hard time imagining, but so imagine if you had, for example, a son who was six foot three, a really big guy, but who was intellectually disabled. And uh, in the same way, if a, a, a toddler might get angry and start punching things, your six foot three son is going to do that if you, uh, I don't know, don't give him candy or something after lunch. And there, you know, there's, there's, there's many people like that who have sort of been put in the community um, when previously they would have been in uh, a facility or something like that. And it, there's just not enough people to deal with that kind of person because to stop somebody like that from being violent towards you or housemates or whoever, like people like that might take three to four men to restrain. Like it's, it's, it's not so simple. Okay. Well, uh, I think, I think we have a sense of, what the transition has been like, what community-based living is like, and why one, in many cases, would prefer it, but why for people with the worst conditions, it's not ideal, it's not cost-effective. Um, so let's talk a bit about sort of the philosophy, the ideas underlying the, um, the activism to try and get people out. Now, it's one thing, I think, when activism is driven by, you know, past historic injustices and, and that sort of thing, like, has occurred in this situation uh, in the past, but... A lot of that is no longer the case. Many of these institutions are are much, much, much better than they used to be. Um, uh, and so, even though that past, you know, injustice uh, might haunt the current institutions, uh, I don't think it should discount them. But a lot of the activism seems driven by the desire for people who are disabled, uh, in in whatever sense, to live normal lives. And part of that is to live as normal life as possible, say in the community. But there's also an aspect of that, which is like they need to live real lives in the sense of it's not just enough that say you could have a institution, uh, a state school or something like that, where you have all the different sort of elements of normal life, right? It's baked in like that is not enough. There needs to be an authentic normal life lived by people with these disabilities. Um, so, I mean, do you think that's sort of a, a fair characterization of, of their stance? Very much so. And I, there's a conversation that I read when I kind of, you know, doing some reporting 
that really stood out to me as as crystallizing this entire debate, and it, and it really falls just along the lines you, you laid out. In California in the 90s, they were debating closing their, their facilities for people with disabilities and, and how quickly they should do it, whether they should be closed at all. And there was a, there was a study that came out um, by Stra- oh, gosh, Strauss and colleagues, there, uh, Chevelle and Strauss maybe, um, that found actually that when patients, when former residents of the institutions for people with developmental disabilities there, but I, I, you, arguments obtained kind of on the mental illness side as well, but um, when patients were discharged from these facilities, they actually had a higher mortality rate than would have been expected uh, had they lived out the remainder of their lives in the institution. And they actually put out a chart because these were all war- not all wards of the state, but they were living at state facilities. And so the sort of mortality tables were available to the statisticians and they could compare one to one, like, you know, what were the death rates? What would we have expected for a person in, of this profile, you know, charting it out over time? Um, and they found that there was a significant, I don't remember the exact number and don't want to quote it out of pocket, but I mean, it was, it was orders of magnitude higher for somebody who had been discharged prematurely into the community. And this caused a huge uproar. Um, in the disability community because it was thought, and, and there are all sorts of social scientists who have dedicated their entire careers. I mean, I don't want to name the litany here, but there, there are people who their entire career has been dedicated to the proposition that there are no downsides, zero downsides to the deinstitutionalization of all people, but of people with developmental disabilities in particular, which is set forward as sort of like the perfect example of what we can do for people with mental illness or old people in nursing homes. Like, developmental disabilities is thought to be like, this is what it could look like for everyone. Uh, And so to have any sort of downside rear its ugly head, or even potential for uh, risk consideration was intolerable. So there was a huge response from the social scientists who were invested in this narrative, and they worked so hard to debunk it. And they put out, you know, papers arguing that, oh, well, they didn't, uh, that actually what happened was, uh, patients who were discharged from the state ho- state school and sent to a hospice unit off the grounds were counted as having died in the community. And this is what actually fueled the increase in mortality. And it wasn't due to the community. And then Chevelle and Strauss shot back with their own paper saying, no, actually our data is sound, whatever. So there was a whole controversy about this. But the nub of it is, and this is to get to your point, there was one letter to the editor that was written by a parent of a, a deinstitutionalization proponent who, whose son had, I think, very mild disabilities. I don't want to, I don't know that for sure, but I, I remember, you know, him speaking about having a son and from what it sounded like in the description, he didn't sound like he was terribly, terribly disabled, but I, I could be wrong about that, but that's not important for this. He said, you know, it doesn't surprise me. And he was commenting on the mortality difference between um, people in the institutions and people in in society. And he said, you know, it doesn't surprise me that people who live in a bubble-wrapped world die at lower rates than do people out in the real world. And this was supposed to be an argument for community living. So there's this idea of the dignity of risk, that you and me having the ability to get in the car, drive where we want to go, get from point A to point B, entails a certain amount of risk. We could get hit by a truck, we could get hit by lightning. Something could happen and we could die. And we still make that choice anyway because we're free, autonomous agents who think the, the you know, uh, upside of me getting from point A to point B and getting, at what, getting to wherever point B is, is worth whatever risk is bound up in me taking that journey. Um, and so disability rights advocates said, this logic applies to people with disabilities. We should not be kept 
even if they're perfect. See, this is this is this gets to your point. Even if the institutions are great, even if the institutions are as well funded as they possibly can be, even if they have the staffing ratios, even if they have the wraparound services that I described, even if they're the perfect institution, they deprive people of the dignity of risk, the ability to make independent decisions for themselves, to have the freedom to make mistakes, to have the ability to burn their hand on the stove and learn, I shouldn't burn my hand on the stove because I burned it myself rather than somebody telling me. Um, and that's a, that's kind of a caustic example, but it's one they might use, you know, the idea that you have the freedom to learn from your mistakes and that freedom should apply to everyone. Now, I, I think that's, that's kind of the steel man case for like, okay, close these places down. Even if they're like these perfect, pristine institutions, it doesn't matter. It could be Willowbrook. It could be, it could have half of the U S treasury devoted to funding it. It doesn't matter. Right. Shut them down because they're simulacra of real life. They're not real life. And real life is what we're after. But but if you are the parent of a child of an adult child now who can't speak, who has no functional independence, who relies on other people for everything, for every single aspect of their day to day functioning, who I've seen I've seen patients in, in reporting who they have to be propped up at a certain angle so that their feeding tube doesn't dislodge and send food into their lungs and, and cause them to choke. I mean, like people who need to be monitored around the clock. Should their children have to be the guinea pigs for this dignity of risk? Should their children have to assume the dignity of risk just because just because certain activists have a higher risk tolerance and say that everyone should have the same risk tolerance that they do? Does that mean that the individual at the public ICF who's very vulnerable and the only thing they've ever known is life in the ICF and they tell proctors who come and ask them they don't want to leave and whose parents say you know, he darts out into traffic and at the state school, everybody's driving 15 miles an hour around the grounds and it's okay. And he's not going to get hit by a car, but if he does that in a residential neighborhood, he might get run over. Uh, who's, who gets to determine how much risk that individual is willing to take? And I certainly don't think it should be. And, and now I'm going to be a little bit polemical, but frankly, I mean, I think it, I think it merits it. it. It's, it should not be credentialed people, high functioning people with autism who say, I am disabled. I get to speak for every person with a disability. Yes, I went to Harvard. Yes, I went to some elite school, but I have autism. And so therefore the nonverbal person at the state school has to have the same risk preferences that I do. No, you don't get to make that call. You don't. I'm sorry, you don't. And it's hubristic. Just like I would never say that that individual from Harvard should go live in an institution. So of course I wouldn't say that. But the idea that what they cook up, not you know them, but activists, what, what disability rights advocates cook up is the ideal life has to be for each and every person, regardless of their stated preferences or their guardian's stated preferences, if they're incompetent, that that should stand in for their preferences is, I mean, I don't want to even use the words what I think of what it is, but I, I just don't think it's right. I don't. I, and I, I, I fight very hard and I don't, I think it's a losing battle, unfortunately, but I'm fighting very hard because I, I don't know. I just... These these facilities are being shut down one by one on exactly this logic, and it's it's compelling to legislators who see the person with Down syndrome who comes to the Capitol and says, "I have a hot dog stand, you know, and I make X number of dollars an hour, and I am so happy, and I would never want to be in an institution." And and what is my what is the facility in my hometown to do? Are we going to wheel somebody who can't talk down to the state capitol and and ask them to talk about what it's like to live in an institution? Are we going to bring the person who? Is a danger to himself or others into the state capitol to testify? I mean, come on, it's 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 an unfair fight. And so, 
uh, yeah, it involves necessarily, I, I don't live there. I wouldn't want to live there. And this is, I, I get this criticism all the time. It's like, well, you, you defend these places, but why don't you go and live there? And, you know, it makes you think it's like, it's a challenging thought. It's like, okay, you know, like how, how committed am I to this? But I also think that like the fact of a person's disability and the needs that they have makes a difference. It does. I don't, I, I'm not on a feeding tube, thank God. But if I was, and I needed that kind of care, maybe my preferences would be different than they are, you know, or if I was totally incompetent, maybe my risk preferences would be different than they are now. Yeah. I, I, I can't say, would I, in my state right now, want to go live in a state school? Probably not. Probably not, being honest. But I don't think that that precludes the possibility of someone with a different set of needs, wants, desires. Like, this is the example, I think, the sine qua non. There's an individual in Pennsylvania that I reported about, and maybe if you've read my work on, on this, you may have read this profile, where he was living in a group home in the community, and he's exactly the person you described, six foot three, severely autistic, and because he was so dangerous to himself and other people, he his group home, his life in a group home, it was just him and four staff members. Okay. So that was community integration for this 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 man. Was one him living by himself with a bunch of staff members to try to restrain him when things went haywire. Um and whenever he would have an outburst, his neighbors would call the cops on him, which prompted all sorts of uncomfortable interactions. Or he would get kicked out of the public swimming pool when he would go and try to swim when he would have an outburst because he was dangerous. I mean, a six foot three man having an outburst is a very dangerous thing for other people, for children in pools. You can't have that. So when he goes to the institution, which he eventually does, the state school in Pennsylvania, which has since been closed, which is travesty, but it has. Um, when he goes there, he has a pool. He has basic, basically freedom to roam the grounds within reason. He, he's not confined to a group home where he has to be monitored all the time. Of course, there's monitoring, but it's he has a lot more freedom than he otherwise would have had. And he's not getting the cops called on him if he has an outburst. It is, in a sense, more freedom than he ever would have had had he been in a less restrictive setting. I mean, this is the paradox of it, where if, if that were my situation, I might well prefer the state school. If, if the alternative is you can't go anywhere, you're living by yourself, but we have this place where you might even have a built-in network of friends who are similarly situated to you, who have similar challenges and, and have had similar experiences to you, and you have the freedom to like roam the grounds and like make it your own. I, I don't think that that criticism from disability rights advocates, which I take in stride because I think it's a reasonable question to ask. I don't think it like it's a disqual. Like I don't think that a person necessarily has to say I would in the state I'm in right now today volunteer to live the rest of my life in a place like this when uh, I think people's needs are different, people's preferences are different. And yeah, I don't think it's an inconquerable objection, I would say. It speaks to a, a major philosophical difference. And I think this is, the, I think this is the, people always argue like, how is left and right real? I always say, yes, it's based on this. It's based on like, do you think everybody is the same? Or do you acknowledge that people are actually different? Like, can some people be better and worse? Can some people be more or less competent? Can some people be even more or less disabled, like within a cat, right? It's, and if you accept that, which I think is just reality, if you look outside, if you talk to people, you notice like that's reality, then you should want to have a variety of everything, a variety of options, a variety of places for people, because we are a variety. We're, we're all so different. And with the left, you get this very, you know, uh, I don't want this to be a bragging on the left podcast, but you get the superficial care for an acknowledgement of diversity based on sort of 
you know, demographics, basically, but we're so much more diverse than that, like in actuality. And I think if institutions uh, can't deal with that, that's not good. I mean, a problem with the former situation is perhaps you had perhaps the too many people of different abilities were in these institutions, right? And that was not good either, because that's a one size fits all approach. Uh, you have people who, right, like this autistic, you know, lawyer or whoever who maybe is able to go to Harvard, who in a previous, you know, in previous uh, century would have been confined to the same institution as a six foot three, you know, guy with the mind of a three year old. I mean, that's also unjust. Uh, but in the same way, it would be unjust to take that, you know, six foot three guy and put him in Harvard. Uh, right. It, it, but for some reason, we 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 don't seem to have these conversations. And, you know, you're obviously very well versed in the history of this. One thing you notice, right, the history is the language changes all the time, right? You have the euphemism treadmill. So you go from, uh, I think, what is it, idiot to moron to retard to intellectual disability. And yeah, it'll yeah. continue. They always add more and more words because it's harder to turn it into a slur, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, these things will just continue forever. I mean, the, because people, you know, people think that the words determine thought and it's like no it's like the thing determines thought we just use the word to describe it and um but you know it's the same thing for for this history i mean if you look at the state schools right initially those were seen as a an improvement or like and now it's like this is like the worst thing in the world this is so it's terrible and i think this is this is part of the problem with the sort of really i don't know Whiggish, Hegelian, whatever you want to call it, view that like we're all just on a, a neat slope upwards towards perfect equality. Uh, and it's like, it's not that we can never make progress. I think we have, you know, made progress, but we can also degress. And treating everybody more and more and more the same can, in ways that we are more the same, is good. Treating everyone more and more the same in ways we are not the same is bad. And so, you know, um, yeah, it's, it's, to me, to me, it really just comes down to that philosophical difference. The other thing I want to say about it is I think it's a big problem, and this is true in other fields of medicine and mental health, especially with rep- representation, right? So we talk a lot about representation nowadays. Um, I think a criticism that sometimes people say in the you know mental health world or, or, or even in the racial minority world, I mean, all these different kinds of people say, well, the, the, crit- you know, the person who's advocating for my group doesn't really represent me. I think that's often a legitimate criticism. I don't actually, I would say we don't necessarily even apply it enough, right? Like when we have activists who are saying like, I'm a black activist or I'm an indigenous activist. I mean, how many indigenous activists are like one sixty fourth, you know, indigenous or whatever. And uh, how many people who are, you know, Marxists who are claiming to speak for the working class have like PhDs from Ivy league universities. I mean, we really don't have representation that's accurate. any sense but i think in in these kinds of debates it's a problem because yeah you can have somebody who is has the mildest case of schizophrenia who is now the representative for mental illness as a whole right i'm not saying there's like a solution to these representation problems but it i really think when people are making political decisions like they should not we have to teach them don't be swayed by this stuff right the, the people with people with a disability is a massive category People with mental health condition is a massive category. It, it really, truly is not possible for one person to get up there and represent all those people. And yet, you know, we, people do this all the time and it seems to work. Yeah, it do, and it's, gosh, it's, it is hard, especially I have less time and sympathy for 
the types of professional advocates that that we've described a little bit. Some of them, I, I, I know that I want to extend the presumption of good faith to, to everybody in these debates, especially because on the issues of like developmental disabilities, mental health issues, it's a very, you know, it's an under considered pop, both are under considered populations and, and they could, they could stand more attention, even bad attention, frankly. So I, I'm, I'm willing, I, I think it's a principle of, of a good debate to extend to, to them, uh, the presumption of, of good intentions. But uh, I have a lot more time for the types of people, whether they were mental patients at the state hospitals in 1965, 1975, or they were former patients or residents of the state schools who get up at these hearings and say, you know, uh, I lived here. These places took away 20 years of my life. Uh, I'll never get those years back. They were exactly in the category you described, people who should have never been there and were and had their tr- truly their, their liberties taken from them uh, by the state. And that builds up a lot of righteous indignation that I am in no position, you're in no position, nobody's in any position to say you shouldn't feel that way. Um, and so, you know, on, on that level, I, I don't want to put myself in their shoes and say, well, okay, they should just accept that the facilities are not now what they were then and they should, they should you know, stop ex- speaking about what they experienced and, and maybe even put forward their view. Um, but there is a presumption, even among people in those categories, I hate to say, that their experience, number one, is the same as everybody's experience there. And just because, and, and, and this is not, you know, this is not me speaking to those people directly, but it's just making a general observation about political debate in general, and to whatever extent it, it applies to these individuals, make, make the application. Um, but just because you went through something bad, as terrible as that is, and as much as I will never live that, and I can't ever fully comp. I, society, everyone can never fully compensate you for the wrong that was done to you ever. And I'm not, I, society, whoever is not minimizing the wrong that was done to you. Sometimes that can create a distorted lens. I mean, everybody knows it in their own lives. When you were hurt in some way by somebody, something that creates, it can create, doesn't always create, but it can create distorted perceptions. And it's something to be aware of because in this, in this institutionalization debate, uh, I just went and covered a few facilities in, in Washington state. And this guy who, was uh, institutionalized in, I think, 1950, and he was there for the first 20 years of his life, and I'm sure it was terrible. I grant that it was terrible. Um, he says, you know, I'm going to come back, and he's like, you know, pretty high-functioning, whatever. He says, I'm going to come back to the Capitol every year until these places are closed, then I'll be happy. And he said it, you know, a little bit less fluently than that, but that was basically the upshot of it, is then I'll be happy. Th- those were his exact words, then I'll be happy. But, and, and this is, this is kind of crass, but we have to ask, like, why should your being happy about like, you know, these are real abuses that happen to you. You know, I, I'm not discounting it for a second. I don't want to be interpreted as discounting it because I would not, for, I, if something, if somebody did to my child one day, what happened to these kids, I don't want to even think what I would do. You know what I mean? So I'm not, but thinking logically and taking off the emotional blinders for a moment, why should on account of what happened 20 years ago, should 500 people who have voluntarily chosen to live at an institution in Washington State, why should they lose their home? And why should your being happy or unhappy with that decision have anything at all to do with it? It shouldn't. It shouldn't. You're not a stakeholder in that anymore. Frankly, you're not. I'm sorry. Like, the truth is, and this is a very hard, hard pill to swallow for me, for everyone, but like, at the end of the day, nothing can fully redress 
bad things that happened in the past. Okay, you can't. You can pay, I mean, like we did to the Japanese after the internment, you can pay a token bit of reparation. And maybe that does something to quell the disease. I think we did that even for some, uh, at least so, I know some some private institutions that perform lobotomies eventually eventually made payouts. So, I mean, that, that sort of stuff happens. And I'm not opposed to it at all because justice matters. But at, at sort of the meta level, shutting, will, will shutting down these state schools really, really erase what happened to you? You know, because at, at this level, like a lot of the people involved admit that it's symbolic. They'll even when you really get down to brass tacks, they'll say, well, it's just like it's important about what it signifies that these places are still open. It's important that the fact that these places are still open means that we don't fully include members of disability, uh, people with disabilities as members of our society. What does that even mean? Like, you know, a symbol, like you're, they resort to these abstractions where it's like, we have the very practical problem of a person who is six foot three, can hardly speak, is violent to himself, uh, is, does is, does harm to himself and oftentimes hurts other people to whom something must be done. Something must be done to and for that person. Now we can debate what the best solution for that person is, but these abstractions about like, are people with disabilities fully included if a state school still exists is missing it. You're missing it. And it's, and, and that debate is not going to solve for you the very real problem of, of the terrible things that did or did not happen to you in the past. And that's, it's very easy for me to say, I grant that. I am in no position to tell anybody how they should or should not feel about terrible things that happen to them in these facilities. And I don't want to be misunderstood as saying that they should just get over it because they shouldn't. I would be angry too. But, but it does have, but that anger has real world implications for the actual people who are living there today. Because if the solution to their anger at what happened 50 years ago is to move out 500 people against their will, then yeah, I think, I think we as people who didn't go through that have the right to say no, actually. I, you know, I am sorry that that happened to you, but that does not give you the right to superimpose your preferences on people. It, it doesn't. So it's a very hard conversation to have, and it's not one that I'm often forthright about because I, I don't want to be seen as minimizing the suffering, the real suffering that people had that I've never had, thank God, and never will have, hopefully, never know for sure. But it's I don't want to be seen as minimizing that on the one hand. But on the other hand, the fact that tragedy happened at some of these places cannot be a, cannot be the only reason we shut them down. It can't be. Yeah, but you know, this this whole conversation, like one one person's uh what what is a terrible place for one person is a great place for another person. People, if they have uh if they can be mature and they can have good theory of mind, can escape the trap of I can only speak on my own experiences, can put themselves in the minds of other people in other situations and and say, like, this would be terrible for me, but I can still see it's good for this person, right? Or um, you know. The, this was horrible for my son or for the people who went through this, and it's still good for the people who are there are now. Like that is, I suppose, a kind of uh, it requires some distance. It requires some, you know, maturity emotionally. I, I can tell you're more closer to this issue than I am, but I think that is what we should all aspire to. Whether or not we can ever actually make it there, um, that's what we should aspire to. In any case, uh, John, it's been great chatting with you today. Uh, if people want to read your work or learn more about you, where should they go? Uh, they can visit my Twitter at John Hirschauer, H-I-R-S as in Sam, C-H-A-U-E-R. Um, I 
so I would have pointed them to my author page at the American Conservative. You can still look there as I transition a city journal, hoping to write more uh, there. I do have a few articles that will be coming out uh, in the next few weeks into months, kind of about the deinstitutionalization issue that I, I covered for uh, the Novak Fellowship, and those will be on my, my Twitter page. So look forward to blasting those out. All right. Well, John, yeah, it's been great. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks very much.